The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Two True Freaks or Demonsicorp Productions. Although there's a couple of them that we're pretty suspicious of. Demonzo's known to tip a little red wine, and the irredeemable shag is often suspected of being on crack, but nobody has any evidence yet. So, innocent until proven guilty, I guess. Kids, don't try this at home or outside the home, or you'll catch cancer and or go to hell. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. We've gathered here tonight around the fire as people of all lands have gathered for thousands and thousands of years before us to share the light and to share a story. An amazing story, as old as time itself, but still being written. Hello, and welcome to Two True Freaks, episode 420. It's another episode of Storytellers. I know they're few and far between, but I've been promising this one for a long time and you know episode 420 only comes up once so i had to have it done by then so here it is it's the infamous chris versus drugs episode um the first thing i want to do is apologize for the the title i think it's kind of lurid but i just liked it it sounded more dramatic but this is not really a story of say a person me and their struggle with drugs or against drugs. This is not going to be a series of cautionary tales, although there will be cautionary tales in here for sure, but it's not going to end up in a 12-step program or, you know, with me slobbering on the streets. Well, there there, uh, well, there's, might be some stories of me slobbering on the streets, but those are probably part of some of the more entertaining and good stories in here. So, um, just a disclaimer, I am not promoting the use of drugs, I am just documenting what I have done. Um, you can use my life and my quote-unquote artistic output as some sort of, um, meter as to, uh, um, what, whether they have had a positive or negative effect on me or, or whatever, but, um, this is certainly not meant to be an anti-drug statement or a pro-drug statement it's just what my experience with them are um full disclosure i am on drugs at the moment i have been drinking rip it tribute energy drink it is active mandarin live wild lime flavor so it's got a full out douchey name it's a 99 cent cheap ass energy drink that will have me jabbering all throughout this podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> what else can I say but sit back, relax, man, and just go with the flow. Chapter 1. Childhood Drugs. All right. 
The first chapter, Childhood Drugs. Yeah, I know it's a really weird chapter to have, but I've been thinking about this for a long time, and if I figured I'm going to talk about drugs, I might as well talk about all the drugs and every, I mean, there's just so many drugs to consider. And as a little kid, you think, yeah, little kids don't take drugs, but they're taking drugs all the time. They're taking chewable aspirin. Um, they're drinking caffeine. Jeez, my, my grandmother on my father's side was the person who introduced me to, you know, black tea, hot tea. And, uh, just with a little bit of sugar in it maybe I actually I think I was drinking it black because I wanted to emulate my father and grandfather and then on my mother's side that grandfather would make iced tea you know sun tea and I would go to mow his lawn which was an all-day affair and be just slugging down iced tea by the gallon literally like from a gallon jug and uh, so that's some powerful powerful stuff and, and then you start mixing it with Pepsi and sugar and stuff and candy and ooh boy um, I used to take a whole bunch of different things for allergies I can't remember the names of any of them at, at this point but um geez every day I used to take vitamin pills I used to take um, fish oil pills and our dentist had prescribed us fluoride pills so we had to take these little tiny white fluoride pills but I think the most Im important factor was uh, I had asthma when I was a kid so that meant inhalers all kinds of pills different kinds of triaminic syrups this really nasty yellow syrup and then this pretty sickly sweet almost delicious orange syrup um, I remember this one drug, it was a big purple pill called Slophilin, and um, I remember the first prescription I got from it was way too big. It was these big horse pills, and I was bouncing off the wall. Um, for for um, when you have asthma, a lot of the the medication that they give you are stimulants. It's speed, basically. So I've thought to myself recently, I was a real go-getter in school I was as a little as a little kid in elementary school and stuff I was really into my studies I was really focused on uh, learning something when it was presented and I wonder how much of that might have had something to do with me being just like wired out of my brains and I don't think of remember myself being like that but I was a kid so I don't have any other frame of reference you know I, um, yeah I, I, I was taking that stuff all the time and anybody who's ever had any experience with uh, Adderall which is uh, which is something a lot of people are, like, kids are, are prescribed it and a lot of adults abuse it or whatever or take it recreationally it really gives you a lot of focus and people will sit down and study something and learn it while they're on Adderall. So I was thinking maybe I was an A student because because A, my asthma kept me indoors a lot of times and um, not active, so I had to read a lot and, um, and stuff like that. And B, because, yeah, my brain was just spinning with stimulants.
I don't know. I don't. It, it's it's a uh, it's a theory. Yeah, I just wanted to put this chapter in here for you know people to think. Um, drugs are something that just about everybody everybody does drugs pretty much, and when you think about it, you've been taking them since you were a little kid. So on to chapter two. Chapter two: Alcohol and Tobacco. Alright, alcohol and tobacco. For a good warm-up on alcohol and two true freaks, etc., etc., you should listen to our earlier um, uh, Storytellers episode, Who is Pete Hesh, to really really get some good alcohol stories. But uh, these ones are going to focus mostly around me. And I I threw alcohol and tobacco um, into one category just because it sounded good, like the Bureau of... Uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Or is that how it is? ATF? Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Yes. So we'll start with alcohol. Um, I'm not much of a drinker. My family were, were, were not drinkers. Um, in high school, I used, to, I used to drink. And then after that, it's been sporadic. And I usually don't drink an awful lot. I've been known to get drunk at a few Christmas parties in the past, and I just don't seem to have the stomach for it anymore. Drinking is a lot of work. Getting drunk is a lot of work, especially if you're not a seasoned, tempered drinker like myself, to where, okay, I don't want to go through the, the, the as much work which the work is drinking it down. It usually is not going to taste that good unless it's some fruity concoction, which is going to give you a big hangover and is also watering down your alcohol, so you have to drink a lot of it. So there's this whole cycle of drinking, pissing, getting other... And it's it's a lot, it's, it's a lot of hassle. And... So if you want to like do it faster and you go to say something like shots, then things, especially for me, start getting really dangerous and you're, you're talking blackouts and stuff. But um, my early memories of alcohol, you know, I remember like taking a sip off a keg at a party my parents were at and uh, just, you know, they all got a big laugh as I spit it out and was like, yeah, what the, you guys are crazy. And um, uh, doing the same thing with wine, I remember once or twice at like Christmas dinner, uh, my sister and I were allowed glasses of wine, which we thought was really cool, but then when we tried to drink it, it was not that delicious. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But I remember uh, one thing that uh, a lot of kids in the fall would would get cider in their thermoses at in in school and uh sometimes you'd have cider sitting around the house and if it sat around too long it would start getting hard hard cider and you know everybody's knows they have the hard cider drinks now but this was true like just apple squeezins that started turning to alcohol and fermenting and every once in a while a kid and myself included would open up their um their thermos and hear this little um, telltale like <laughs> escape of air and um, 
would know my cider. So every kid would want to have a sip of their cider and would pretend that they were drunk and such. And I remember I took it to the point of where once I, I, I found a book on how to, um, you know, in those days I couldn't just look it up on the internet, but how to make your own hooch, basically. So I had a, a, in, in my room, in under, under my bed, I had a gallon jug filled with orange juice and sugar and yeast with a little cheesecloth um, filter on top to, uh, to keep stuff from getting in or going out. And I got caught with that because it would just sit under my bed as it fermented, making farting, belching noises and, and putting out this rotten, <laughs> sickly sweet orange juice smell that my parents soon figured out what the hell is going on there and then we're gonna have to fast forward a little bit to um to um high school and and stuff like that that's where i really did my my alcohol duty as as any high school student does i guess um especially in a small town like that where you have sometimes a little more freedom to uh, uh, be away from parental um viewing uh, one of my first drunk experiences I remember was with, and this is one of the few times where I can use someone's actual name in it, and it's because he's a listener of the show and I know he won't mind. It's Mr. Mike Cross. Um, I was in Black River, New York, and we were going to go to the Fireman's Field Days, which is a whole story in itself. But uh, we had gone over to our, our friend Def Shepherd's house where his mom in the basement had a, uh, a little hair studio. So they had the, the seats with the, the hair dryers on them and stuff. And we'd gone to this little market that would sell the miners and, and bought some malt duck, which in today's parlance would be a 40-ouncer. So it was a 40-ouncer of malt liquor. And it was basically apple malt duck. So it was apple-flavored malt liquor, very sweet, um, very drinkable for a high school kid, like candy. The big thing when when I was a Ute was beer and Bartles and James style um, wine coolers, which were just basically like candy drinks. Um, so I remember sitting in, in Def Shepherd's basement with Mike Cross getting really buzzed and then wandering out to the field days and almost getting our asses kicked. <laughs> pretty hard um another um um dr drunk that that sits out in my mind was uh when scott gardner was about to go off to the air force we took a night off in carthage and had a big big bottle of cooking sherry horrible horrible rotten gut old dust on the bottle kitchen cooking sherry and we just walked around Carthage causing havoc, grabbing kitty toys and flinging them into trees and off rocks and just generally got drunk on his, his I don't know if it was his last night in town, but it was getting close to when he, he, was, he was taken off. Um, oh, jeez. I remember um, stealing 40 ounces from our friend Chuck's dad, who was... A hard drinker. He'll pop up. He'll pop up in a couple more stories, as will Chuck, in 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 this show. But um, 
in in his dad's house he had one side of the house was sort of his dad's area and it had a living room and behind that living room was just sort of a little bookshelf area through a doorway and it, and he had a refrigerator back there and there was a doorway out the back of the house so his dad would sit in the living room um, surrounded by books watching TV and getting slowly buzzed all day on peels on 40 ounces of peels beer and uh, one day uh, Chuck just went in there and just started while his dad was watching TV his dad would get drunk enough to where he wouldn't want to get up out of the chair and we, he was watching TV and he was just hammering nails into about halfway in all around the edges of this door frame and his dad would turn around every once in a while and be like god damn it what, what, what the hell are you doing and he was just like oh nothing I'm just putting some nails in here put some nails in here and uh, meanwhile I'd be sort of standing in the background just like holy shit what is this guy doing you know because my parents yeah you can't you know I had fairly normal parents so it, 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 I wasn't used to this sort of dysfunctional, weird situation where the, he was sort of in the dominant position to his dad. His dad was in no position to mess with us, but I didn't know that just as a, an authority figure, I was by default set to be scared of his dad. So he sat there and once he got the nails all the way around the edge of the door frame, he just took some bailing twine and would start wrapping it around the nails and then sort of weaving like a little spider web from one end of the door to the other until the whole thing was pretty much blocked with baling twine which uh, any of you non-farmers out there uh, baling twine is, is sort of like a thin version somewhere between rope and twine it's very strong and it's very rough and it's scratchy and strong and um so then, once we'd have the whole doorway all webbed up, we'd just open up this old fridge and just start scooping up 40 ounces into, you know, into our arms. And um, this made a very distinctive clunking, clanking sound, which that would spur his dad into action. His dad would stagger up and start running towards us and, of course, get entangled in this bailing twine swearing and screaming and we would go out the back door run into the woods and stash the beer for for a night of drinking <laughs> yeah the only time i ever drank to such an extent that i semi blacked out was this was after i was out of high school and was in college and it was during uh, a winter time vacation so it was probably christmas vacation and I'd gone to visit, gone home to Carthage to visit one of my friends who was back from the military, not Scott Gardner, but another friend. And um, I don't know if he'd been married by then or was about to get married, but he was soon to be, he was soon to be or freshly married. And his wife wasn't there. And um, <clears throat> so it was very celebratory and it was Christmas time. And we went over to his house and his parents were known for drinking but now that I don't even think I may not have been I doubt I was tw I could not have been 21 at the time but his parents this was the first time they were actually freely like 
serving me alcohol at this party. There were a bunch of nuns there too getting drunk. And I remember drinking mixed vodka drinks, like vodka and orange juice. And then this guy from our high school showed up with a bottle of tequila and said, who likes tequila? And I was the only one who raised my hand. And I remember starting to do shots of tequila, and then I don't really remember a whole hell of a lot after that. Just, um, just little incidents. And um, if you want to check um, another storytellers where Scott and I talk about our high school experiences, you'll hear more about our vice principal that that's going to show up here in a second. But I remember, you know, downing shots of tequila, then black. Then I remember being in a bar and I'm standing right next to a dartboard and the darts are hitting right next to my face and I'm just sort of just sort of watching it happen and and looking over then blackness again and then the next thing I know I'm in front of my the the house that the vice principal of my school lived in and I've got an old crate full of rotten it could have been tomatoes, it, veg, vegetables or fruit, but it was rotten produce of some sort at which I was winging at his house and there and behind me were people like giggling and laughing and I was yelling, I know you're in there, come out! And just winging stuff at the house, you son of a bitch! And then black. And then the next thing <laughs> is a car in a snowbank with the tires going while I'm pushing on the ass end of the car and then black and then the next thing is I'm waking up on the floor of my friend's house who I'd been staying with and I had fallen asleep with my head on the heat register which and woke up completely hungover and dried like a piece of beef jerky but it never really turned me off to uh, tequila tequila's probably the pretty much the only liquor that I can really do shots of and enjoy and uh, and will do uh, I, I like low-end tequila where you have to salt down your mouth and pour a lot of lime down and I like um, the high-end tequila that you can sip on and, it, and it's really smooth but yeah for um, beer take it or leave it on a hot day on a hot summer day if I've been working all day a cold beer right after right after stopping work is pretty satisfying but otherwise I'm not very just not very good at drinking all right well next up tobacco before I record this I am gonna step out and have a cigarette break and come back for the full cigarette experience so be right with you hey bud you got a spud no fool but I got a cool now I'm a fella with a heart of gold With the ways of a gentleman I've been told The kind of a fella that wouldn't even harm a flea But if me and a certain character met The guy that invented the cigarette I'd murder that son of a gun in the first degree Now it ain't cause that I don't smoke myself And I don't reckon they hinder your health I've smoked them all my life and I ain't dead yet Nicotine slaves are all the same at a petting party or a poker game. Everything's got to stop while they have that cigarette. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. And we're back. Um, cigarettes. Yeah, nicotine 
Nicotine is one of the drugs I'm not uh, as proud of. I'm, I'm definitely, I enjoy smoking, but I would rather not be addicted to it. And uh, I've been smoking on and off for probably 30, almost 30 years now, 25 years. And it's something that I eventually would plan to quit. Um, I have quit before for years at a time. I've quit using the e-cigarettes. I've never really used the, the nicotine patch or the nicotine gum or anything like that. I've chewed nicotine gum before from people who've used it. And, man, that stuff is tastes nasty and it's really strong. It reminded me of the time when my cousin came up and he was chewing tobacco. And I decided to try some of that. And it was one of the most horrifying experiences ever. It just tasted awful. You had to spit grasshopper goo every 10 seconds. And then this just incredible head-spinning, nauseous sort of buzz that would come after it. It was not, not fun at all. But, um... I, in, in high school, I was hanging around with a friend who had gone as an exchange student to Germany for a semester and, and had gone there and experienced Oktoberfest and learned that in Germany, everybody drinks, kids, everything, during Oktoberfest. And all the kids were smoking, so he picked up smoking. So I'd be, and he was also one of the first kids to have a car, and I'd be riding around in his car, listening to his cassette deck, and he would give me cigarettes. And uh, after a while, I started bumming cigarettes off my other friends until they got so pissed off at me that they, while they were on vacation, they stole a carton of Marlboro Light 100s. And that was my first, my first, um, I guess, cigarettes of my own. And that's where, where I started smoking. Um, when I was a little kid, every once in a while, I'd sneak a cigarette from my grandfather's ashtray and and smoke it but of course as as a kid we found that disgusting now it's just delicious delicious um yeah and it sucks to be a smoker these days you're relegated to outside as far away from anybody as possibly you could be um back in the day you used to be able to walk people used to walk through stores and smoke cigarettes put them out on the floor there'd be ashtrays in the back of the the seats of of the the sleazy cinemas in new york city it was just a different world there was ashtrays in in every restaurant and and there was smoking in bars imagine that but um if there was one thing that i could wipe out of my whole drug history it would be tobacco and if you notice there aren't any good stories here there's no nothing good so let's just get the hell out of here and move on chapter three marijuana also known as cannabis mary jane pot weed duber hashish the kind bud danky bobanky Kiefer sutherland happy plant and nepali temple balls i like marijuana you like marijuana we like marijuana too i'm marijuana Get no done, Mara. 
All right, here we go. This chapter, now let me tell you, this is a good one. This is a marijuana chapter, and I know. Yes, all the jokes throughout all the Two True Freaks episodes. Chris Honeywell's stoned. Chris Honeywell likes smoking pot. Well, I'm just here to say all that is 100% true. Um, I love it. I, I, I love that drug. It's... um. I'm tickled pink that in this day and age, I'm starting to actually finally see legalization happen after 30 years of arguments between and discussions between my friends as when this would actually happen. It's starting to happen, and it's very interesting to watch and, and kind of cute <laughs> because it's strange in the podcasting community. And with all the people I've met, you know, involved with the podcast, I'm still the only one who's, you know, imbibes a little of the smoky smoky, which is very strange because in my experience, it just seems like there's a huge proportion of people from grandmothers down to high school kids who use it and use it responsibly and without destroying their lives. And so, so it's strange to, to, I almost feel like I felt in high school where I almost got singled out because when I started smoking pot, I was pretty vocal about it. I didn't, I did not keep it on the down low. My sister, who was a, a smoker also, would never have admitted to it in school and had actually been called out a few times by some of my friends and other people who knew her who had smoked with her outside but would hear her talking smack about it on the inside so i was not one of those people i i was kind of a weirdo when it came to to drugs i was a very normal nerd towards with my attitude towards drugs i should say i was a pretty nerd i remember saying so many times i don't know why i would need drugs i'm having so much fun naturally which is true which was, is a very standard thing for high school nerds to say. But that pretty much summed up my attitude. And then I remember once in, in, in middle school, my sister was being nosy and, and rifling through my mom's shit, you know, going through her dresser drawers and stuff. And at, I remember after school, it was weird because my sister and I didn't get along too well, but she just was like, oh, I'll show you something. And she had a shoebox. And inside the shoebox was another box, and and it was a little baggie full of crumbled up leaves. And she said, I think this is pot. I think they have some pot. Which was mind-blowing to both of us. No, there's just no way our parents would ever do that. So we were trying to figure out how we going to find out if it's pot and there's no way we were going to smoke any of it or anything like that. I don't think we'd even know how to do it. As a matter of fact, I think there was a little bowl in, in the, in the box too. So it was like a little kit. So 
my sister put some of it in a baggie and gave it to me to take to middle school. And the only person that I'd remembered who talked about smoking in middle school that I knew as a peer was this kid named Melvin, who was the only only black kid in our in our middle school. And he was an army brat, so he'd, he'd been around more. He'd lived in some more urban areas and just in different places and was a little more worldly than we were. And I remember just sort of approaching him in school and saying, look, my sister and I found some of this. My parents, you know, I'm going to give it to you. Could you tell me if this is pot or not? And he said, sure. And came back the next day and said, you know, I'm not really sure if you can get me some more of it. Um, maybe I could determine that and then I knew instantly yes jackpot it is pot <laughs> so that that kind of blew my mind and it, it, at that point as a as a nerd will do I decided to do research and I started going to the library and finding books and finding out that the stuff that I'd learned in in um, health class such as if you take LSD um, this is actually something our, our science teacher taught us, quote unquote, taught us, told us this story of um, the person who'd taken some LSD and they freaked out, thought they were an orange, and to this day, they are in a mental home. And they freak out and scream when anybody comes near them because they think they're going to be peeled. And uh, I remember hearing that story in class and going, that sounds like bullshit to me. That sounds like a uh, old wives' tale thing. And upon research, found out that it was. It was sort of a, a classic folk tale about LSD. And I was like, why are our teachers giving us just this sort of weird, um, not true version of it? That's not what we're supposed to get from school. I was very disappointed because I, at up until that point, I'd sort of held teachers in a very high regard. I was a classic nerd. And so I started doing research, and I started thinking to myself, hey, I might want to try this marijuana someday. And I was thinking to myself, I might want to try this LSD someday. And um, not too keen on the cocaine and the heroin and stuff like that, but... That other stuff doesn't sound so bad, and it seems like there's a lot of people who've taken it and claim to have positive experiences. So I sort of planned it out and researched it, and even after I'd done my research, I wasn't in a big hurry to try it. I remember um, I was in this advanced science um, program where they would ship us up all on a short bus and drive us 50 miles to this college where we would take a physics course that was designed for us. And myself and another kid, Tom, and I were kind of like the troublemakers of the crew. And I remember we went there the first time and um, that we had some time where we were supposed to be sitting on the bus and, and Tom and I just decided to wander through the college. And we ended up in, in a bathroom, and he went into a stall and lit up a joint, and I was scandal. And he's like, hey, you want some? And I was like, ah, no thanks. And uh, just sort of passed on it. And that was the, the first time I think, that was the first time I ever saw somebody actually smoking. Then the first time I, I, I smoked myself, 
I was in Utica, New York, outside Utica, New York, um, with my friend Chuck, who was visiting another friend who was a drug dealer. And um, he said, hey, we're going to go there and smoke some pot. Are you up for it? And I said, sure, I'll try it. And um, I remember not only was it my first time smoking pot, but it was the first time I met a bona fide, confirmed gay person. And uh, we were on our way to go pick up the pot from his friend's dealer. And it was it was in a brownstone building. And I remember on the way over, my friend explained to me, he's like, all right, now the place we're going... <laughs> The, the, you, you might find it a little funny because the guy is is definitely gay he may he, he may be there with like his boyfriend and they, they might be sort of lounging around together and uh, <laughs> I can't remember who else was with me but there was somebody else with me and we were just like oh god <laughs> what are we getting ourselves into and we get into the elevator in this building and everybody is uh, is giving us the hairy eyeball and there's this one big mafia looking guy and he like starts give, giving us the eyeball and, and looks at us and actually says you know oh, better not start any trouble and he's moving his jacket aside to show his concealed gun and uh, so I was thinking oh my god what have I got myself into so we go we go to the apartment and sure enough it's just like Chuck described this guy sort of like Freddie Mercury spread out with shirtless on a on a couch just sort of hi everybody flaming super flaming gay and uh, so you know my, myself and the, the friends we were we were all very uncomfortable and then they start rolling up joints and they're sticking them in the end of uh, the the tubes from ballpoint pens to make a, a shotgun which is you stick the joint in one end and you actually stick the joint in your mouth and blow the smoke out and you get the stream of smoke so everybody was smoking that way and I remember they kept giving me hits of this and telling me okay you have to hold in the smoke and and I was doing it and uh, um, coughing and everything nothing nothing happened nothing at all felt nothing felt no different meanwhile everybody else is starting to act goofy they're all laughing at stupid shit and they're, you know, just acting really funny. And I'm thinking to myself, this is all a big placebo. These guys, they've just fooled themselves into thinking that they're high or they're, they're acting like they're high because they of peer pressure or something. This is just plain ridiculous. And um, we, we, we went back home and... I was just like marijuana is a is a big joke. So the next time, like you know, about a week later, um, with my friend Chuck and we were we were crossing the Black River and messing around on this old factory, and I fell down and sort of hit my wrist on a rock and had a pretty decent gushy blood wound on my wrist, which I wrapped my sock around. And we went back to his house and, you know, then uh, all of a sudden we're going to smoke some pot. And we went out into the woods behind his house and met up with this big guy who, of course, is named Merle, um, who was in our high school and infamous for just beating the shit out of everybody. And um, we were smoking pot with this guy and he was being 
friendly to us. It was the most bizarre thing. And I'm thinking, ah, I'll smoke this pot. This is, you know, whatever. It's just this fake thing anyway. And smoking and smoking and smoking. Yeah, give me some more of that. And smoking and smoking and smoking. Then all of a sudden, it happened. Everything was in slow motion. Um, just your stereotypical looking at the world through a fog. It caught me completely by surprise. I had no idea that this was <laughs> this was going to happen. And you know, laughing, and we're we're heading back to to Chuck's house. Just a side note, we'll go into it more later, but his house was a, was kind of a crazy house, kind of like the Adams Family house mixed with a lot of cats. So anyway, we, we go back to his house, and uh, at this point, he had a, his bedroom was on the upstairs. It later ended up in the downstairs, but at this point, it was in the upstairs, and he had a bedroom with a little bathroom off to the side of it. And we were in his ba- bedroom just basically... I think we basically turned into gorillas in the gorilla cage. We were taking whole rolls of toilet paper from his bathroom and just tossing them into his room and letting them unspool till the whole room was filled with toilet paper and then just sort of running through the toilet paper. As you would see gorillas play at the zoo. And his mom is at the bottom of the stairs and she's just screaming at us. You know, I know you're up, what do you do? You're on drugs. And, uh, you know, I'm flipping out. Oh my God, your mom's, she knows, you know. And he's like, that's right, that's right. We've smoked pot out in the woods. What are you going to do about it? And she's like, I'm calling the cops. And uh, I'm flipping out at this point because I'm fully high for the first time. I'm paranoid. Um, at At that point, I'm thinking I could go to jail that, you know, God forbid my parents would ever find out. So we're, we're sitting up there and, and she's like, I'm calling the, the, the cops. And she would go down and pretend to dial the phone and hold the phone up to her head, face and go, hello, is this the cops? Well, my son's upstairs and he's on pot. What? You're going to come right over? Yes, his friend's here on pot too. We better come over and arrest them both. Well, okay, thank you, and hang up. And um, I was falling for it because I'm a, I was a sucker and I was stoned. Chuck wasn't having any of it. He was uh, did not believe it at all. He was used to it. He lived there. It was, uh, I guess, daily, as I would find out, actually, it was daily routine there. And uh, then she started playing really hard, really hardball and started pretending to call my parents. Hello, is this Mr. Honeywell? Well, your son's here on drugs. And I'm up there like, oh my God, she's talking to my dad. He's like, she's not talking to your father. Trust me, she's not talking to your father. And sure enough, she wasn't. But uh, yeah, that was the first time smoking pot. Within a week after that, my sister was asking me to smoke with her. So I did. And at, at which point she felt nothing also and told me, oh, this is <laughs> obviously uh, um, a big joke. And then a week later brought all her friends over to try some. 
and uh, they all end, uh, ended up, this is one of my favorite um, memories of all from high school, was um, s- smoking pot with all my sister's hot high school friends, and then um, that we were all sitting in my room, and I had speakers set up on each corner of my bed so I could listen in quadraphonic. It wasn't quadraphonic, though. It was just two sets of speakers. But I put on the record of um, Prince's Purple Rain, which was their request. And I ended up with four of my sister's teenage friends standing on my bed doing the, doing the Prince dance to the entire album of Purple Rain as I lay there going, you know... This ain't so bad. This ain't so bad at all. And then I started finding all the the other friends that I had that were also smokers, and we'd start smoking together and have um, a a lot of the the stereotypical experiences. In a small town like Carthage, it was kind of a rigmarole a lot of the time to find pot. You had to go bounce from house to house. We had one dealer who you could go to his house, which was basically his mattress that he slept on and his exercise equipment. And he would weigh you out whatever amount of money you gave him. He would just like, here, here's here's the amount of weed that goes. And we would, we would take um, tin cans and make them into MacGyver-style smoking pipes. But sometimes he wouldn't have any, and you'd have to bounce around all over the place or drive... 20 miles into Watertown to buy them from a sketchy um, porno shop and and all that. So it was it was it was a real pain, but we finally found a um, reliable um, dealer in Watertown named Adam, and we would and he was a few years older than us, and we would go over to his house and have all the stereotypical experiences. I remember being at his house, and he would smoke us up, and uh, we were talking about Pink Floyd, The Wall. And how much we liked it. And he said, well, well, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, man, that's where it's at. And we were like, oh, we never heard Dark Side of the Moon. And it was one of those, <gasps> you've never heard Dark Side? Well, we're going to listen to it right now. And he'd go out and he had a really nice cassette deck. And he b- pulled out a nice metal oxide dub of, of Dark Side of the Moon and put it on and said, we're going to smoke a bong and listen to Dark Side of the Moon. And I remember all of us listening to it going, wow, this is great. And then at the beginning of time when all the alarm clocks went off, we all freaked out. We're just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is the greatest thing ever. Oh, just so ridiculous. Um, I remember one of my friends going to a Billy Joel concert and coming back so proud that he'd bought some of uh, the legendary tie stick, really um, strong and potent pot. And uh, it turned out what he'd actually bought was black pepper in its raw form tied to a stick. But he was not going to admit, never in a million years, was never going to admit that that was not real pot that he'd spent that $50 on or whatever outrageous amount of money he'd been ripped off for. And he smoked every bit of it over the the next, uh, the next week. And um, then I guess uh, we'll just sort of move into college where, well, you know, we, we, end, uh, we I ended up actually selling pot because I was in college and when you smoked pot in college and weren't broke, you had to sell some so you could 
cut your um, cut your losses. So um, the only reason really we got we got the cell pot in college is because one of my roommates had run into somebody while he was hitchhiking who ended up being a big um, grower of it or knew of or whatever, but set us up. So all of a sudden this person just started dropping off pot at our college um, apartment and we were in business. And we, I was at RIT, which had a huge school of the deaf. And that's when I found out that, I don't know if it's the same now, because this was 25 years ago, but deaf people liked to party. We had a constant, constant um, line at the door of people knocking and, and gesturing to us in sign language or writing on pieces of paper. And it was so, a, a few of them were a riot, but it became problematic after a while, as does all college drug dealing. We'll be seeing a lot more of that later on in the episode. Um, uh, there were a lot of games associated with smoking pot. We used to play a dice game called Cosmic Wimp Out in college that was pummeling. Um, in high school, one of the more popular activities to do was a car bake, where you would sit in a car and smoke in it until there was a, a rich atmosphere of smoke and then you had to stay in the car till the air was cleared. And I remember these things actually ended up being competitive. I remember um, there were these two guys, Barry and Dan, and they, and they each had a car and, they, and we met them out in the woods and we, we got in Dan's car with Barry and we noticed that his glove box was open and his bag of weed was in there. So we locked him out and knocked on the window and Barry made it very clear to Dan that we were going to smoke all of his pot before we got out of his car. So Dan, of course, had swiped Barry's pot from his jacket pocket and locked himself in Barry's car and basically said, oh yeah, well, not if we smoke your weed first. And whoever, you know, smokes it, finishes first is gonna have to go and finish off the other one. So then it became two cars sitting next to each other trying to see who would smoke the other person's bag down the fastest. Kind of immature, really. But there you go, high school. Um, we used to go to another friend's place and his parents were old hippies and uh, they would smoke us up and that was great. We would go to their house and, it, and you know, we were all very awkward about it. We weren't going to broach the subject and his mom would make these amazing, amazing thick Sicilian pizzas and um, bring them out to us. And then she would, but just before that, she would break out big fat joints, smoke us all up, feed us some pizza, and then would sort of give us the old like, oh yeah, you, you, you wanna listen to some music? Your kids are up on, you know, your Jimi Hendrix and your Beatles and Rolling Stones and your Pink Floyd and all that stuff. But you ever heard of Captain Beyond? And we were like, what, Captain Beyond? That sounds cheesy. Boom, she'd put it on the turntable and uh, start playing it really loud. She'd be, she would be in her rocking chair, rocking back and forth, sort of slapping her hands on the, the edges of it while we would sit there going, oh my God. I'm so baked. This music is so good. Oh, John's parents are so 
cool. <laughs> and we got introduced to a lot of obscure, very good hippie music that way. Um, but otherwise, since then, it pot has become less of a competitive or hardcore pursuit with me, and it's just become... I don't know, sort of the way someone would have a beer, I guess, at the end of a day or something. Something more integrated into my life. It's obviously, um, these days as I get old, I like to smoke pot before I clean. (laughs) Before I start working on cleaning a house or, 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 you know, doing some chores. That, That always helps. Or going to a movie. There's nothing better than going to a movie with, I, I, well, I could sit here all day mentioning the great things to do on Pot, but that's not really what this is about. This is about stories. So Pot doesn't have as many crazy, crazy stories in it. Um, I promise you those are coming. So that moves us on to another chapter, a shorter chapter, but a little more scandalous chapter. Before we get into the next part of the show, I think we should have a little intermission. So sit back, relax, and listen to a little shooby. We shoot some saw, shoot some spar, shoot the plaw, do do raw, do do saw, do do raw. We da da shraw, la pa saw, da da raw, la da shree, lo pa, da do saw, simulate we da, simulate do baba, ray, sha da ha, sha pa gra, sa pa sa, sha pa ra, sa pa da, sha pa ha, simulate do that, do baby, do baby, then simulate da la ba, do da, then baby, do shra, so, sha da, ra, sa, pa da ha, simulate da, simulate do baby, then simulate da la ba, do da, do baby, Baby, 
Chapter 4. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Chop a line now. Cocaine decisions. You are a person with a snow job. You got a fancy, got a go job. We're the cocaine decision that you make today. We'll mean that million somewhere Alright, this is the chapter wherein most people's X versus drugs story, things would go off the rails, so to speak. You would have hookers' asses, you would have rehab, you would have blowjobs in the Greyhound bus station. But fortunately for me, my life did not follow that direction as far as cocaine goes. I've never been a big fan of it. I have done it sporadically since I'm a fairly ugly guy and my rule with cocaine is I'll do it if somebody offers it to me. Uh, It just so happens I don't get it offered to me maybe once every five, six years, something like that. And then I'll do it. I find it to be a pleasant drug. Once in college, uh, my roommate talked me into um, buying some. And we proceeded to buy it, and I watched him alternately talking (laughs) and compulsively chopping up what, you know, small amount of cocaine we had bought and alternately snorting it and both of us just waiting for the other person to shut the fuck up so we could start talking. And that pretty much sums up cocaine. It's it's a drug of choice of assholes, basically. If you want to make a hobby out of cocaine you're probably going to end up being kind of a douchebag because it kind of, like alcohol, I think it kind of brings out a lot of the worst in people. Um, Not in a primal state as alcohol does, more in an advanced state. uh, uh, The the more advanced mental assholery of the human condition comes out during cocaine. I only got a couple stories. The, the, the one story is my first experience with like that culture. Um, my friends and I were in Boston and skipping ahead a little bit, we were on LSD and we were just wandering around the town and one of the people we were with, their roommates or a friend of theirs or something had told them about a party that was being held at a house. It was an after party for a Ramones concert. So we thought we'd stop by there, and and it was a big house party. The Ramones weren't there. It was mostly, I think, people who worked at the club, and went to the club. And it was somebody's house, and it was a it was a hipster house of the the 90s. It had an Elvis shrine in it, and we sort of were just sort of circulating, and we were on LSD, so we were very interested in everything. We were we were actually around the Elvis shrine, admiring it, and we noticed that everybody there was just very animated and then 
there would be these time periods where all of a sudden everybody would just sort of disappear into rooms and doors would close and it would be quiet and we'd find ourselves virtually standing alone in this party and then all of a sudden the doors would open up and everybody would come out blah 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 and very interested in conversing and socializing. I remember one guy was going to everybody and introducing himself and getting their name and asking them what kind of cigarettes they smoked and then he went to the store and bought everybody a pack of cigarettes of their brand and then circulated them around the party. And people were very friendly in in a way but it was very um, superficial (laughs) sort of way and yeah, I just, I, I was not impressed. I, I had a roommate once that that was doing a lot of cocaine, and she was just horrifying to live with. And that was the last time I think I did cocaine is when she was moving out. Um, after all her stuff was gone, there was just a little table left in a room with a couple lines on them. And just to be an asshole, I said, I'm going to snuffle these down <laughs> just to be a jerk on my way out to band practice. But... Otherwise, um, all, all I really have to say about cocaine is it's not the horrible monster that people portray it to to be. I have seen people um, destroy their lives with cocaine, and um, but I've also seen people just make a real nuisance of themselves <laughs> and just generally be unpleasant people because of cocaine, but not really do a lot of harm to themselves. It's uh, it's it's really it's kind of a drug. You have to you you have to have some money to work on a, a habit, or you have to be ready to dive into the seedy seedy side of life. Um, speaking of which, um, if you want to hear my story about um, me smoking crack, <laughs> which should be in this one, but I already did it in episode thirty-three, Grill the Freaks. So you should go back and check that out if you want to hear the story of how Chris smoked crack but anyway i don't like this chapter i'm not into this chapter so i'll go into the chapter that i'm really into and that i got all the stories for so here it comes baby chapter five psychedelics I think you did a little too much LDS. Ah, believe me. This section I've had to do the most thinking about because this is a section that I have the most stories about. So I had to go through and just sort of cherry pick some of the best ones. And actually this will sub-segment into a, a special chapter as, as after a couple stories. A few notes on <laughs> LSD. Um, I did a lot of it, especially back in my 20s and early 30s. M- more than I can quantify at this point. So, um, just an, a note on, on, on this. It's, LSD is, for those who haven't done it, is not like normal intoxicants. It's not like alcohol. It's not like pot. for the most part it is quite a powerful drug and um i seen things go both ways with it in incredibly positive directions and incredibly negative directions and a lot of it depends on 
how you feel at the time when you take it and where you are and what you're doing. And if those things don't mesh up right, things can go terribly wrong. Um, I've never seen anybody hospitalized, at least anybody I know, maybe like at, at a concert or something, I've seen people that, that might have been uh, shipped off because they've taken too much. But I've definitely seen people, and myself, as you'll hear in some of these stories, had quite a miserable time on acid. But um, to try to explain what happens when you take LSD is so subjective and... Um, the only thing I can think of that sort of sums it up is your brain is constantly filtering out information um, that's maybe use, useless on a conscious level and, um, and, and picking out the stuff that um, pertains to what you're doing and, and to what you're focusing on so that you can actually do things <laughs> On LSD, those filters are kind of turned off or shut way down. You're, you're bombarded with thoughts, um, hearing things, visual things, and feelings, emotions coming out from all different directions, and it can be wildly discombobulating. And um, it can be hilarious. It, it, it could pull out something awful. It could be therapeutic. Uh, or it could, in some cases, be crippling. So it's something that should be taken with a lot of thought and maybe some research to it and all that. And blah, 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 disclaimer, disclaimer, on to the good stories of things that happened to me while I was on LSD or other psychedelic drugs. All right, so we might as well just get right to it with my top two most insane LSD trips. And um, so I guess we'll go in in chronological order. And the first one was back in my hometown. And uh, it was, at, of course, my friend Chuck's house, which was the craziest house as far as it's the closest thing to the Adams family house that I've ever um, known. Not really as much as it was like, looked like the Adams family house, but it was just a crazy house. His, his mother and his father were both, just off the rails it was a house filled with cats and we could we would party over there without anybody really sort of interfering with us his his parents would interfere with us but they were all all smoke and no fire so there was all bark and no bite or whatever choose whatever whatever saying you want but um somehow we'd gotten a hold of some LSD, which was very hard to do in Carthage, New York. It was not something that was around. Getting pot was hard enough when you were a high school kid. But we had gotten a hold of a good amount of it, and a bunch of us had never had taken LSD before. I had, and I think maybe three or four other of us had, but for a bunch of people there, it was going to be their first time tripping and um, so I would say there was about six of us and we all were in my friend Chuck's room in his house which was on the ground floor and right outside his door was the living room and then a hallway to the kitchen where his family hung out and I don't think his father, I think his father was working at the time but his mother was home and he had announced to her you know we're all gonna be taking LSD and she was flipping out you know she was 
usually would be yelling at us and screaming at us, and then five minutes later coming in with a plate full of grilled cheese sandwiches and Pepsis. Uh, but this time she was genuinely concerned. She was in her sort of, you know, quiet, almost cry voicey stage where she's just like, I don't want you guys taking that LSD. It's, it destroys your mind. So we're in his room and, and we, we took the LSD and it takes a little while for it to take effect, you know, sometimes up to an hour. Um... And so a lot of the people who take it for the first time are going, oh, this is bunk, this, is, this isn't going to work. So we're sort of sitting around in his room. And the LSD starts to take effect, and Chuck, since it's his house, is starting to get a little paranoid. He doesn't want to deal with his parents, which is... <laughs> anybody could understand that. So he has this big cast iron sword... And it's not like a sh sharpened sword. It's like this rusty, it's a display piece, but it's very heavy. It's got to be about 10, 15 pounds. And he would use that to prop against his door like a wedge so nobody could get in and, and mess with him. So he had the sword up against the door and um, we start feeling it. So everybody's kind of giggling and talking and goofing around and... You know, nobody wanted to go outside of Chuck's room because outside there was the real world filled with adults and quote-unquote authority figures or people who weren't tripping who and wouldn't understand or would think we were crazy or whatever. It's just a sort of paranoia state. But then Chuck decided he was going to go out there. But he could not go out there unless he had his ghost with him which was this big plywood ghost that was sort of a yard decoration for Halloween time and uh, so he picks up this ghost like a shield and then grabs his sword and walks out the door leaving the rest of us in his room like whoa you know because we know his parents his mom can you know just be nuts and we're waiting and waiting in there and it's quiet, quiet. And then he walks back in and he's like, you know what? It's wonderful out there. It's a wonderful world out there. So now the door to Chuck's house was open and we start <laughs> exploring the rest of the house and the yard out front. And his mom is bringing us drinks and looking at us, you know, really worried. And she's not her usual screaming self. But then she starts noticing for the first time. Uh, now, most of us, I, I, I'll say this. Um, Chuck would be really rude to his mom. He would yell at her and stuff. Uh, all of us were too intimidated by parents, no matter how crazy or weird, that we weren't going to like say anything out, you know, mean to his mother or anything. You know, we would, we would be impolite by implication because we'd be with Chuck when he'd tell her to shut up or something like that. And, and wouldn't go, hey, hey man, you shouldn't talk to your mother like that because you're sort of, you're in the, you don't know how things are going in the house. So nobody was really messing with his mom. Plus we were on acid, which makes you a little more timid in, in a lot of ways. And she started noticing, you know what? These guys are, are intimidated by me now. But, and, I, and I have sort of a, an advantage because Chuck was being very friendly to her. And um, we ended up in the kitchen, and she's doing the dishes, and he just walked up to her, and they said, hey, let, let me do the dishes. And he starts washing the dishes with this, you know, authentic 
happy smile on his face and starts joking around with her. And all of a sudden, everything changed. She just looked at him and she goes, you know what? I like this LSD stuff. I wish you guys would take it more often. And, and he would, oh, whoa, and he's laughing. And uh, so meanwhile, now she's now she's in on the fun. And um, I'm trying to kindly ma- think of a way to describe his mom. But if anybody watched the old uh, Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny cartoons, there was there was an old witch that used to um, have hijinks with Bugs Bunny. There's one where. Um, they were turning each other into bats and variations of bats and other things by doing abracadabra, abracapocus, all these variations on abracadabra and hocus pocus. Anyway, she kind of looked like her. <laughs> and uh, now at this point, she's going to start messing with us. So uh, one of our friends is just in Chuck's room. He's like tripping out, man. He's laying on Chuck's bed and he's got a pillow over his face and is probably just enjoying the light show on the inside of his eyelids. He'd tripped before. And um, she just walked in into the room and looked at him. And he was alone in there. And so she she, she yells his name and he pulls the, the pillow off. And she just goes, where, where did everybody else go? And he goes, what do you mean? She goes, they just disappeared. I was looking at them and they just disappeared. And then she walked out. And then she turned around and walked back in. And started pulling at her scraggly hair and went, My hair is green! And out the door. And every once in a while she would burst into the room, poke her false teeth out like the alien in in the Ridley Scott movie, flip them over, and then back into her mouth and back out, flip them back over and back in, and then leave the room. And, you know blowing our minds man so what ended up happening is everybody ended up in the kitchen and uh, she decided that she was going to organize a a game of poker (laughs) which is the most it's like herding cats with you got a room full of six teenagers on LSD you're going to have them play an organized game of poker it was the most hilarious thing I ever saw not a single hand got finished we never got through the first hand uh, first off, she said, we need something to bet with. So she pulls out a big box of macaroni and just starts pouring out a little pile of macaroni in front of all of us. And we're all just staring at the tabletop with the with the macaroni. And she goes, that's not macaroni. It's maggots. Maggots. <laughs> I just remember my friend Pat, who is this little skinny black guy with a with a uh, short afro with a white perfectly circular patch in it and the poor guy was gonna die he was just laughing so hard that he was he was gonna pass out and then of course as all things at Chuck's house go and all things (laughs) just generally went in Carthage New York and things went downhill fast because a couple of our friends um, who've been mentioned in probably in the Pete Hesh who is Pete Hesh storytellers um, Barry and Dan showed up who were uh, hardcore drinkers. They'd done LSD before, but they weren't on it. They were, um, they were basically just 
tooling around and heard we were going to be partying at Chuck's and showed up there. And um, they showed up. They would say bad things to Chuck's mom. So that's what they started. But they were very um, smart-ass kid about it, you know. And and these two guys were kind of tall, kind of Bigfoot-like, sort of just kind of intimidating guys. So we're all in the kitchen tripping, and they're starting to... uh, Oh, oh, under their breath, call his mama clammy bitch and stuff like that. Or, uh, ah, that's what I just said, you stupid whore, and stuff like that. So we started realizing real quickly that it was time to get out of the house, (laughs) to get these two guys away from Chuck's mom. Because we were tripping. We had no reason to be mean to anybody. We were having a riot with her. We didn't want these guys picking on her. So... We get outside, and then Chuck's brother's out there, his younger brother, who had to be about 15, 16, and he was a bruiser, too, and he was really drunk. And he didn't like our friend Darren, sort of. And he started having a little conversation with Darren, and then just out of nowhere, sucker punched him right in the face. Just bap, right in the face. And so that was our final clue that it was time to go. And, um... So we all pile into two cars, and one of the cars being our friend Barry's car. And he, he says, we're driving to, uh, this is the middle of winter, I might add. We're driving to Watertown, and we got to pick up our friend Doug from work and, um, you know, bring him home. All right, so that's an adventure. We're all, we're all ready for that. So we get in the car, and it's very apparent as soon as we start driving to Watertown, that Barry is really drunk, very intoxicated. Um, in Carthage, you, you get eight to ten foot snowbanks. He was just reeling his car from side to side of the road, hitting the snowbanks, making big piles of snow fall down on us. And uh, by the time we got to uh, Watertown, we pulled into the restaurant where our friend Doug worked, and uh, we started getting really worried as to what was going on. Um, so we, we, we pull into the parking lot. He's like, hang on a minute. I'll go in and get him. So we're waiting out in the car. And um, a few minutes later, we see um, Barry come out of the restaurant, sort of walking in a hurry. And he s- just opens up a car door. Not our, Not the car he came in, not his car. We're in that car. And we watch him open the door. He just starts going through the glove compartment. He's rustling around the car. And um, he pulls out a, a brush for brushing snow off the car, sticks it in his back pocket, and is just generally, you know, rolling someone's car. Meanwhile, at the same time, there's a couple coming out of the restaurant going, Hey, that, that, looks, that looks like our car. Is that guy in... Is he in our car? So they walk up and... and uh, the wife confronts him. She's just like, you know, um, what are you doing? And he turns around and he's just like, what? What's wrong? And they're like, why are you digging through our car? And he goes, oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't know this was your car. I thought, I thought, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And he just walks past them. And as he goes by the woman, he goes, ah, it wasn't even your car anyway, bitch. And um, gets in the car and we speed off <laughs> back to Carthage and he drops us off 
end end of night. <laughs> that's the end of anything exciting in that story. So that that's the first story. But oh, actually, uh, I I forgot to say when when we later actually did go back and pick up our friend Doug, we had found out that that Barry had gone into the restaurant and was waiting for Doug near the salad bar. And one of the waitresses walked by and noticed that he had his penis out and sitting in the salad bar. That's why he was sort of leaving there in a hurry. So that's that's the first story. Now on to story two, one that happened in my college years. So once again, I'm going to bring up um, set and setting. And just before I start this next story, I'm going to give a little preamble about all because while this story is not about like the worst case scenario for set in setting god forbid anybody should be in that scenario um but it's um it's pretty bad so <laughs> um but before i tell that story i just want to give a good example of a of good set in setting i've had lots of great trips because i was at great places with great people doing fun things um i saw pink floyd i saw king crimson on on lsd i've been at a pagan fest and watched um fireworks on lsd i watched a ufo float over thousands of people's heads in the catskill mountains i took a cube of lsd six hits folded into a cube and saw the preservation hall jazz band in a in a um, beautiful hall on New Year's Eve and then went to a police parking lot and did nitrous oxide <laughs> all sorts of fun things but um, anyway this here's here's a good example of good set and setting is um, and it's not me it's uh, this this girl I knew in in my freshman year who I sort of was hooking up with at the time and she, I don't want to say she was naive, but she had n not ever drank or s done any drugs or anything before coming to college. And she overheard us talking about how we were planning on taking LSD the, the following weekend, which happened to be Halloween. And she was very into, she'd never heard of, of this drug before. And seemed to be interested in taking it. I immediately, my first instinct was, no way, you know, this, you know, somebody who has no conception of this or no other experience with drugs or intoxicants at all, that's a rather um, intense experience. And, and, uh, but <laughs> I wasn't the one who uh, talked to her about it. Uh, another friend of ours, sat her down and, and sort of described what an acid trip was like and he described it in very kind of manipulative um, skewed terms very positive terms uh, and you know he described everything as being really cool and just sort of the stereotype of like somebody in an anti-drug <laughs> movie or something and I remember not being too keen on the fact that you know uh, that she was going to take LSD but then again I also believe if people are old enough and want to do whatever they want to do they can do what they want you know 
Well, it turned out she had a wonderful time. It was a beautiful night. Um, it was Halloween, and I remember we were walking outside, and there was, you know, the perfect Halloween night sky. You know, clouds lit up and just sort of on either side of a full moon. And we ended up going back and hanging out at her dorm room and listening to the, the B-52s, which I had never heard before. And, we're, and she was having the greatest time. She was happy as a little clam. And I think a lot of it had to do because nobody... I, if I would have given her um, um, a description, <laughs> I don't know if it would have turned out quite so well. But let's swing to the other extreme of, of when an acid trip can go terribly bad. Or at least just horribly uncomfortably bad. This didn't end in the hospital or the loony bin or anything like that. So, uh, you know, it didn't go really bad. But just to the point of where it was not fun. <laughs> not fun is kind of uh, soft pedaling it. Well, you'll see in a second here. It all started out and it was probably a weekend. There were a bunch of us we were going to take some acid. And we had gotten these giant Gundus hits. They were big. And um, usually hits like that would be called four ways. And you cut them into four pieces for a hit. But these were, were supposedly one hit on just one big piece of paper. And what should have been a dead giveaway to me was they had a big brown stain on them. <laughs> But hey, you know, that wasn't going to put me off at all. So I took some of that and everybody else seemed to be having a good time. And uh, we were over at my friend Dave's apartment. And uh, we got there and they were just about to pop. He and his roommates were just about to pop Fritz the Cat by uh, Ralph Bakshi. The animated um, for its day X-rated cartoon based on our Crumb comics. I had always wanted to watch this movie, so I was psyched. I, so we sat down to watch Fritz the Cat as as our acid trip kicked in. Well, <laughs> little did I know that this was not as much... I should have known because I was familiar with the work of R. Crumb. But not the happiest cartoon. There's a lot of humor in it, but it goes dark in a lot of places. Uh, I mean, really dark. And that sort of set the mood for the whole thing. After that was done, I remember just having a general feeling of malaise. And uh, so we headed over to this apartment where these two girls lived, um, Nancy and Sue. And they were, they were roommates. And they were, they were known for being pretty evil. And, and they would mess with people's heads or whatever. But... Ew. We were just going over there to hang out, and uh, we were just sort of hanging out, and I start not having a great time. I start having sort of a upset stomach, and I notice as my friend Mike is waving his hand around in the room that you, you'll get trails on your, your hands like in a bad movie from LSD, but this time it looked like the whole room was just sort of filled with bubble fluid and like little trails of bubbles were coming off everybody's arms and everything that was moving around which I thought was highly unusual and I was sort of sitting in a chair in a semi-fetal position and it's, 
not so clear as it progressed. I don't remember if I was telling everybody, ah, I'm not having the greatest time. But I, I was sitting in the chair and I started having communications, direct communications with God. I could send out a question and a reply would come back from God saying, you know, the, the, the answer to my question. I remember asking about the nature of consciousness or something and getting a reply back that all of humanity and all of life were one being and they were all connected and you know as as one on a certain level and that we were all connected and all one being and all this wonderful stuff then <laughs> told me that I needed to tell everybody that but I should take off all my clothes and walk down the street and and tell them that and that's where I pretty much hit my uh, James T. Kirk, why does God need a spaceship moment? And was like, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think that would be a bad idea. And this is what they call your thread <laughs> to reality. <laughs> it's, it's something that you always have to maintain in situations like that when God starts telling you to take off all your clothes and and tell everybody that they're they're all one. So anyway, I got I, I got through that. I, I passed through that stage of my crummy trip and then it just came to a part where yeah, I kind of had a mildly upset stomach, but I was feeling much better and we were all sort of hanging around in, in this apartment when there comes a knock knock knocking on the door and we're not expecting anybody and uh so we go and sort of paranoid style sneak up to the door and yes and and it's a it's a a bunch of friends of ours outside saying hey we're here to visit you they're from uh nearby university of buffalo about an hour drive away so they must have come, looked for, for looked for us at our dorm room, couldn't find us, and figured they might find us here. So we open the door, and instead of our friends walking in, this little short guy with a sort of disheveled, bad hair day, Pavel Chekhov hairdo comes in, and obviously deranged eyes, and he just sort of struts into the room, looks at all of us and goes, Hi, I'm Clifford Pikus and I'm destroying my brain with drugs. And well, <laughs> well let's let's get to some backstory on Clifford Pikus. Clifford Pikus was this guy who my friends had discovered because he was just walking up and down the hall hallways of the dorms in the University of Buffalo and knocking on all the doors and asking people if he could acquire any drugs from them in a very sort of stilted, weird, polite, shaky manner. And uh, they had this friend, Duane, who was called the Evil Deadhead because he went to a lot of Grateful Dead shows and he was evil. Um, he was, he would mess, mess with people's heads to the point of where it was possibly dangerous or, or just plain mean spirited. Well, anyway, 
uh, he sort of glommed onto this guy and found out, you know, this guy is nuts and proceeded to start selling him quote-unquote drugs because this guy would, like, bring televisions over, bring money over, and these guys would go and take, like, old cigarette butts and cut them up and rub stuff on them and tell them they were tell him oh look we got a shipment of Rhodesian monkey roaches here we'll sell you these for $20 and they were just having a a thought it was really funny which is insane so anyway they grabbed this guy and said hey we'll take you to visit our friends because this guy wanted some LSD and they said we'll see if our friends will give you some LSD knowing full well that there's no way we were going to give this guy some LSD but knowing that they could just mess with us. (laughs) So they brought him in to this apartment. Well, Nancy and Sue were horrified, but at the same time, they were a little taken aback because they were tripping too. And it takes a little bit of the piss out of you sometimes. So they were, instead of just like turning around and kicking this guy the fuck right out of the room right away, and telling telling the rest of them what the fuck are you bringing this guy over for? Is what are you assholes? <laughs> that we just sort of were going to watch and see how things developed. Well, turned out to make a great story, but it was one of the most uncomfortable, horrible experiences of my life because it was the fir- my first experience meeting somebody who is truly clinically insane, having some sort of, you know, personality meltdown as we we spoke. Um, he called himself Clifford Pikus, but when, he, when, uh, when they introduced him to everybody in the room, he would just shake your hand and say, glad to meet you, Lloyd. And he referred to everybody as Lloyd, and sometimes he would just talk to Lloyd if there was nobody there. And instantly, I flashed on what Lloyd was, and it's from The Shining. It's the bartender in The Shining, the ghost bartender who feeds Jack Nicholson, the the recovered alcoholic, alcohol to send him back down the road to hell. So that's my theory, is he was talking to Lloyd the bartender. So meanwhile, they're saying, hey, this guy wants some LSD. And um, Nancy and Sue go, well, maybe we'll give him some LSD, but, you know, you guys got to smoke some pot with us. Well, um, the evil deadhead had a bag of pot. And so we were smoking his pot, and Nancy and Sue, getting a little bit of their evil back, decided they were going to go and steal Dwayne's pot and uh, hide it. because they were so pissed that he'd brought this crazy person in their house. Meanwhile, this guy's making a nuisance of everybody, just, you know, asking about, I, I was just wondering if maybe anybody here had some acid, maybe? And, um... <laughs> My friend Mike, ever the wise ass, said, I don't have any acid, but I have this really good drug. It's called pallium. You, you should take some pallium. And uh, he was like, well, I've never heard of pallium. What does it do? Oh, it, it's, it messes you up, man. 
And um, meanwhile, what pallium was was an asthma medication, an over-the-counter asthma medication called primatine in pill form that Mike had been taking for his asthma. Well, Clifford Pikus was still questionable about this, so this other guy said, well, if this guy doesn't want any pallium, I'll take one. And he just popped one just to take one for the team. And uh, so Clifford Pikus ended up taking a pallium. Well, the thing about primatine is it's not going to give you much of an effect. It's a mild stimulant, you know, to, to um, I believe it makes your, your blood vessels contract in your lungs. Or maybe it makes them dilate. Either way, it affects the blood vessels in your lungs. And it only has one real side effect. And that is on that little muscle area between one's ball sack and one's anus called the taint. And one of the effects of primatine is it will make that area clench up real fast out of nowhere. So... (sighs) Anyway, the night wore on, and Clifford Pikus wasn't feeling his pallium and becoming more and more insistent on um, on d- getting some LSD. So, we in the in another room, we took one of those paper punches. Uh, it, they looked like a little pair of scissors, and they'd punch a hole in paper so you could put it in a loose leaf book. And we punched out a little bunch of little round pieces of paper. And uh, said, here, <laughs> we're going to give you some. Here's here's five hits of acid. Only take one of them. But here, you have some for later. You know, you've pestered us enough. Go ahead. So he took it, and then he started pestering us about when it was going to work. And uh, why he didn't feel it yet. And we had to tell him, oh, it's, it's going to be a while. It's gonna, it takes a little while to, to kick in. Then he notices on the floor, he's talking to our friend Bill. And he says, I notice on the floor, there's a lot of hits of acid laying around. It's just laying around as if it were, and Bill finished off his sentence, paper? (laughs) And so he said, yeah, man, we're just so, we just have so much of it that we just leave it laying around. And uh, so now... This guy is starting to get really weird. He's starting to talk about, I used to go to school at Stony Brook, but they turned me away. A curse on Stony Brook. Who here will curse Stony Brook with me? Do you want to chant with me? No, no. And then then he started staring at a fixed point on the floor. And, uh, and, and... We're watching him, and he goes, I'm now going to create a drug with my mind. And that drug will be like cocaine, whereas you sniff it. But it will only make you as high as you want to. And it will only last as long as you want to. And it will never wear off if you don't want it to. And he just continued staring at that point on the ground as if it were going to 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 just show up and at this point you know none of us would have been surprised if it did but it, 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 at the same point we're kind of horrified by this guy because he's we're starting to notice you know when you first meet somebody you get the general 
um, impression of him. But as time wore on, we're starting to notice there's weird things. Like, he's got scratches on the back of his hands that are sort of scabbed over. And at one point, he just freaked out Nancy and Sue because he goes over and he's just sort of inspecting their sink, which was a dirty college sink filled with dishes. In the in the sink was a pan with soapy water in it and, like, they'd made popcorn in the pan and in the bottom of the pan was coated with burnt on popcorn so he starts pulling out pieces of popcorn and just sort of eating them like but just like putting them down his throat like a lizard <laughs> so everybody's getting grossed out so at this point Nancy's like this guy's gotta go he's gotta leave now but at the same time Dwayne the evil deadhead had noticed that his pot was missing and pretty much, since he was evil also, put two and two together and figured these two, two ladies heisted my weed for, for bringing this idiot in here. And um, in a brilliant move, he said, uh, where's my weed? And they're like, you must have misplaced it somewhere. And he goes, you know, you're right. Clifford. What? Clifford. Somewhere I left some weed around here. Can you just start looking around and see if you can find it? And this guy started like a ferret, just digging around the whole house. And and at one point he was, um, these two girls were sitting on a futon, and he started lifting up the corners of the futon and reaching underneath it. And they are just horrified. They're literally cringing in the corners like those old cartoons of of housewives and mice. And they're just like. You know what? You know what? She walks over, <laughs> opens up the cupboard, reaches into the cookie jar and says, Here, here's your weed. <laughs> Get the fuck out of my house. And meanwhile, they, they got into a car and drove back to Buffalo, all the while with Clifford Pikus asking them to please, if they, if they wanted to uh, um, chant to Satan with him. <laughs> All the way, he's like, does anybody want to chant Satan backwards with me? And was chanting Nataz, Nataz, Nataz in their back seat as they drove through a snowstorm back to Buffalo. So, bad set. Started out with a with a bad mood from Fritz the Cat. Bad setting all around with Clifford Pikus. And to where it gives me a good story to tell people about my acid tripping days. It uh, <laughs> was not pleasant in the living. But um, to move on to the next part of the psychedelic section, um, it would be remiss of me if I did not sort of, since I have just so many goofy stories to go along with, with tripping, it, it would be remiss if I did not um, put this little subsection into... Um, into the show. So, psychedelics subsection. The Grateful Dead. Ah, yes, the Grateful Dead. What um storytellers on psychedelics would be complete without this but I just started it off be- with this song because 
the intro of it sounded good, but let's get rid of the studio bullshit and put on something good. Like, okay, all the music you're going to hear now, Grateful Dead-wise, I was there in the audience, man. So let's get this normal crap, radio crap off and get some good stuff in here. Grateful Dead. Well, you know, I just had to make it a special segment of the show because, hey, my first psychedelic trip was at the Grateful Dead. It was the perfect concert to take your first trip at. It was July 4th of uh, 1986, and along with the Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan was playing. I'd never seen Bob Dylan and Tom Petty. Tom Petty played a set, and Tom Petty was Bob Dylan's backup band. Bob Dylan did acoustic set, and then it was Grateful Dead, man. And I can't remember which order, actually, it all went in. But uh, it was also transmitted live for Farm Aid. And, of course, since we were right out of high school and... Um, a bunch of my friends who I went with were still in high school. They were on summer break by that time. Um, we decided on the way to Buffalo we'd make a stop off to Rochester to visit my good friend Mike Cross at his apartment. And while we were there, Mike gave me something I'd never seen before. Some mushrooms. Which he gave me and said, here, you should take these at the show. And I said, okay, I will. Well, I couldn't wait. I... I took them either in the car or maybe like right there on the spot in Mark Mike's apartment. And by the time we got to the outskirts of Buffalo, because this was the night before the show, we had uh, reservations at a motel at a Red Roofs Inn. And by the time we got to the Red Roofs Inn, I was starting to feel pretty good. I was seeing fireworks going off in the distance. There were actually, it was around July 4th. And, uh,. We got to the hotel room, and the first thing that happened was <laughs> my watch, which I'd just gotten I, um, as a gift from my grandfather. <laughs> I was gesturing wildly, smashed my watch, and then decided, man, a watch isn't a good thing to have, man, and chucked it out. And then <laughs> I ended up walking around outside because I had to be outside, and I ended up um, they found me sitting sort of cross-legged around the corner on the on the sidewalk outside uh, air conditioned outside of you know a room and the air conditioning unit was running and it sounded like one of those uh, Tuvan throat singers it sounded like a human voice just sort of going and I was fascinated by it um, but I didn't end up tripping really hard but it was pretty cool so we ended up getting to the concert and we were just you know we we were just out of high school we loved the sort of hippie culture and the, and the music and stuff and really excited to go to to see all these 
bands. I mean, the, our whole crew was together, and uh, I was a huge fan of Bob Dylan. And um, a couple other of my friends were really big fans of the Grateful Dead also. But I wasn't really sold on the Dead. So we get there, and immediately our first thing is to try to find some LSD. And we start talking to people, and people are giving us these little tabs that look like little round pills made out of like play-doh or something that were supposedly mescaline which in later years i found out were really just lsd that was dripped on probably play-doh um and we got some paper lsd and we divvied it up all but between our group and took it and uh, weren't really feeling anything. We had our like a little ban- a little, but it was huge paper banner that we'd made. And uh, meanwhile, our friend Todd was like hooking up with with teenage girls and making out with them. And my friend Darren and I were like, yeah, you know, let's go get some drinks. So we gathered up money from everybody, and the two of us went up from the floor of this huge stadium up to the concession stand to get some drinks. Which was quite a production. It, I believe it might have been um, toward the end of the Bob Dylan, Tom Petty set. And we got in line to, to buy drinks. And that's when it started to kick in. And uh, at, at, by this time, we'd already taken one hit and gone, you know, I don't feel anything taken a second hit and gone like do you feel anything i don't feel anything maybe that was bunk let's try one of these so by that time each of us probably had like two at least two or three each in us and they all hit at once while we were waiting in line at the concession stand i remember my friend darren just staring fascinated at this guy's tie-dye man and he's going hey man and you know i can't do it because I'm not in that state of mind, but like in that state of mind of the first time LSD just kicking in with this guy, it, the sincerity of just like, you have a beautiful tie-dye, man. And the guy looks back and we see, oh, dude, he's probably tripping too. And he goes, thanks, man. And uh, so we're standing in line. Yeah, man, this is great. And we get all our all our drinks for everybody and we're heading back down and Bob Dylan is playing acoustic with his harmonica and his acoustic guitar and there's hippies all around us and it was it was bizarre it was literally like being transported in time there was really nothing in at least for you know a few seconds at a time a lot of, you know as you were walking around you could have been in any time period back into the 60s. It was it was really strange. And by the time we get down to the, the floor of the stadium, um, you know, everybody else is feeling it too, and so we describe our adventures. And uh, by this time, we've, we've made friends with our neighbors down there who was this EMT and his group of friends, and they were all kind of skinny and sketchy looking. But the EMT was the sketchiest of all. He was like shirtless, t-shirt, you know, Moses the Lawgiver sandals wearing guy. And uh, he 
was just swilling vodka right out of the bottle <laughs> and smoking pot with us and um, doing he was doing lines of coke and we were just like holy cow how is this guy gonna you know gonna survive and then the next thing you know we see him sitting intently on the ground working on something with like a little pen knife and we're like what are you doing man he's like I'm scraping the the resin off of this uh, this peyote, man. It has toxic. It gives off toxic resin, which is strychnine, and you and you know if you eat it, you know it'll poison you. And we're like, well, that sounds cool. And so he scraped all the resin off his his peyote, and he ate that. And he was doing okay. He was hanging out with us, drinking his vodka like it was you know is keep cool water and um meanwhile you know he's starting to get really shaky shaky and this guy is like a human skeleton now looking back at it he could have been on you know he could have been on heroin for all i know also um but um he starts swaying back and forth and he just collapses in a heap on the ground at our feet and uh we're looking down at this guy, and he's just like a rock. He's not moving, not moving at all. And we're just, you know, we're tripping and like, ooh, hippieing out. And all of a sudden, we've got a dead hippie at our feet. And, you know, we're looking at him, and he does he's not moving. And, of course, <laughs> back to Mike Cross, but Mike Cross, um, as usual, has... <laughs> smelling salts on him just in case (laughs) and we were popping the smelling salts under his nose no reaction and we're like yo to his friends your friend i think your friend's dead or he's in bad shape and they're like oh he'll be all right and we're just like i don't think he's gonna be all right (laughs) he's he's look look he's he's not moving look can you see he doesn't look like he's even breathing oh he's fine he does this all the time whatever man sure enough 20 minutes half hour later guys on his feet dancing again drinking again unbelievable meanwhile we're just melting down i remember my friend darren at one point had picked up this watermelon rind because oh actually the emt guy was also eating had a watermelon that had been injected with um vodka and that was also being passed around, but there were lots of, you know, watermelon rind laying around on the ground, and he just picks this up off the grass, all dirty and stuff, and he's just, um, chewing on slimy, <laughs> wet, dirty watermelon rind with the most blissful look on his face. Ah, memories. But, you know... I mean, all right, whatever, cool, the music of the Grateful Dead, blah, blah, blah. But in the context of of this episode, you know, back in the day when the band actually existed and everything like that, people, I think people felt you sort of had to be coy about it if you were a Grateful Dead fan. And it didn't even seem like the obvious, you know, something that law enforcement figured out to an extent they did, but not to the point where 
there were huge busts or anything, but basically, and now when I say the Grateful Dead, I don't mean the band themselves. I mean the whole phenomena around it. The whole, uh, the fans, the parking lot, the people who are following around the band, who are selling their wares and stuff, whether legal or illegal or gray area. The, just the whole thing that would blow into a town and take it over. Um, that was the biggest source of LSD in the country. Basically, if you lived anywhere in the country, you could drive for a, a couple, three hours at some point during, you know, the uh, Grateful Dead tour. And whether you had a ticket or not, you could go into the parking lot and theoretically purchase some LSD. And, uh, so somewhere in that huge in that huge circle somebody was producing an awful lot of LSD or had a lot of LSD and it was generally acknowledged that and through my own personal experience many many times the LSD you would get at a Grateful Dead show was far superior to the LSD that you would get elsewhere and when I say superior I mean um, stronger and also free of contaminants because uh, a lot of the, the in the process of making LSD it's insanely difficult I don't know how it gets done at all because I guess one of the main ingredients and since I can't quote any of this but I won't even try to tell you what the name of the ingredient is but one of the main ingredients, I guess, is insanely hard to get because I'm assuming there's just no other reason that you would have it other than to make LSD. And I don't think anybody makes it in the United States. You have to go to Europe or something to get it. And uh, anyway, uh, if you don't have that, yeah, one of the closest things you can come to chemically is um, strychnine which you can get from rat poison. So there would be, you know, crummy bootlegged homemade LSD made out of with um, strychnine in it, So, which is something that you just don't want it in your system. So of course I was always looking for the Grateful Dead acid, which drew me to Grateful Dead parking lots. And I liked the music too. So it was like this little match made in heaven. And, uh, well, let me just tick off some of my most memorable Grateful Dead shows. Um, one of them happened right here in Rochester at, uh, at Silver Stadium, which has now been torn down. And, uh, I was in college at the time. I could take the bus to the Grateful Dead show. It was great. And I remember the bus dropping us off and I, and, um, um, said, Hey, look, my friend Scott's here. <laughs> and that is Scott 2.0. Uh, Scott McGregor, who you might recognize from some Two True Freaks podcasts, he can back me up on a lot of these stories. So we got off the bus and, and saw his car, so I knew he was there. And um, yeah, we ended up in the show. And the first set was you're pretty you're pretty much your normal Grateful Dead set. But the second set. Um, in between the first and second set, I decided that's when I was going to take my acid. And in the, in the second set, 
They were trying out some sort of new quadraphonic sound system, and it was very similar to a Pink Floyd show I'd seen recently to that, which I was also on LSD for. And you could, you know, you could hear weird swishy sounds spitting around the um, the 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 whole stadium. And so that was pretty neat. Well, the, well, they start out their set by playing Green Onions by Booker T and the N- MGs, which they never played before or since. And I remember my friend Kevin just bouncing through the crowd, handing out um, oranges. He had a bag full of oranges, handing out oranges to people going, Son of a bitch, man. Booker T and the MGs. Son of a bitch. And... Um, from that point on, this is when we go into super weirdness land. Um, I, during the second set, I started really zoning in on the music and, and the band and, and listening intently and being sort of focused in my own little tripping world. And I started feeling the actual like energy of the crowd, man, and they would send the energy to the band and the band would bounce it back like a beach ball at the crowd and it would sort of build up and get sent back and build up and get sent back and I was like this is really cool and then I start noticing all around me the people like are sort of like giving each other the eyeball like an old movie with like a cult in it not the occult but a cult, like a weird, you know, religious cult or, you know, a cannibal cult or something where, you know, and then I started hearing as if they were talking to each other in their mind and they were talking about the show and what was going to be played next and talking to each other. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? And when I did that, I started hearing them going, hey, who's that? <laughs> Somebody else is here. Who's that there? And um, I started getting freaked out. And I look over to my left, and I notice there's this big biker guy. And now he's got his full, like, biker regalia, as you can imagine. Not a leather jacket, but a jean jacket, but flying colors on it. And his head is misshapen as if it had been crushed in, like, maybe reformed but something went right <laughs> and on his shoulders was a dwarf <laughs> who had a similar you know sort of a dwarven biker outfit with a jean jacket with the grateful dead painted on it and you know filthy long hair um bandana the whole nine yards beard char both of them were kind of charles manson looking Dwarf's got his arms in the air going <laughs> through the entire second set. One of the most bizarre things I'd ever experienced. And the next day after the show, I'd run into my friend Matt, who was also there, and I asked him what, what he thought of the show. And he said, hey, dude, I'm never going to go see The Grateful Dead again. And I'm like, really? Why not? And he's like, oh, I was tripping too hard. Started hearing people talking to each other in their heads and then they started talking to me, and all of a sudden I decided I'm not going to the Grateful Dead again. But you know me, I'm a sucker for punishment, man. I was, I was, I was ready to go. Well, one of my friends, Barry, who has probably, I believe, he was in the Who Is Pete Hesh episode. 
That was his first Grateful Dead show, and he was ready to drive to the next one with no tickets and scam our way in. Um, I remember um, going to a show in Cincinnati and then Louisville with our friend Ken, and he, we drove this long trip to Cincinnati, and then Louisville was like a bridge over from Cincinnati, Louisville, Kentucky. And um, early in the morning, we were heading over to Louisville to go to the parking lot to the show. And out of nowhere, this girl with no license who was test driving a car ran a red light and just T-boned us and sent us spin. And we were listening. I had just put down the video camera and we were listening to Tubular Bells <laughs> by, I think, Philip Glass, Tubular Bells, whoever did Tubular Bells. Very, very mellow music. Spun the car around crashed um totaled the car i had meanwhile had about now four five hundred hits of lsd that i'd purchased in cincinnati the day before and so i and this was a sunday morning in louisville kentucky i decided that it was best for me to just sort of walk around for a little while while the crash was dealt with and off I go in the morning through Louisville, Kentucky in my ripped up jeans with patches on them and long scraggly hair and um, it's it's time to go to church <laughs> and everybody's all dressed up and walking around and I'm sticking out like a sore thumb meanwhile I also had a final test the next day in Rochester and somehow got home because we met people who lived five doors down from us and they were heading home that night and caught a ride so very very lucky also that night I remember we, we were um, talking to a guy who was a dealer of liquid acid which was acid in a liquid form and he was giving us each a little drop on our hand and when he was done he was fumbling around with his little vial and it dripped uh, dripped I should say poured into the palm of his hand and down his wrist and down his arm now that uh, stuff will absorb through your skin we saw him later and he had this hoodie on pulled to the smallest little hole he could have he was walking around like this little funnel looking out of a funnel and sort of not talking to anybody um, another crazy show and um, was in New York City and I had no ticket for that show so my friends who had a hotel dropped me off in the parking lot so I could walk around with my finger up in the air looking for a miracle man and I was walking in between Giants Stadium and Brendan Byrne Arena um, just sort of looking around for a ticket and within five, ten minutes I got a ticket I had incredible Grateful Dead show luck I could walk into any Grateful Dead show parking lot within 15-20 minutes if I needed LSD I could get any amount at one point a friend and I after our other friends had walked around all day and had no luck finding anything we waited till about a half hour before the show walked into the parking lot and and came out with 5,000 hits of acid <laughs> ah yes um, but this one, I was just walking around. I, I got my ticket, so I was feeling happy. And I was heading across the suspension bridge between the two arenas. And as I was, it was this sort of 
hippie, crunchy guy walking next to me, and he's pulls out a joint and starts smoking it. And he looks at me, he goes, hey, man, you want to smoke this joint with me while we walk over the bridge? And I said, sure, man. So we, we smoked the joint, and we're just chit-chatting and, and walking across the bridge. And as we get to the end of it, you know, the joint is down to the end. It tasted like a normal joint to me, and he goes, "Oh, just so you know, man, yeah, it's uh, it's laced." And I'm like, "Laced with what?" And he's like, "PCP, man." And I was like, "Oh, jeez, okay, well, whatever." And I just laughed because I thought he was kidding. Here's a little hint for everybody: when someone says something like that, don't assume they're kidding because in this case, he was not. And I got my first dose of. PCP, which, if anybody knows anything about PCP, it's it's it was used originally as an animal tranquilizer. So basically, I I was numb from my entire body was completely numb. I could have I felt like a floating head. <laughs> I could have taken a hacksaw and sawed off my arm and just sort of watched and been like, huh. <laughs> That was gross. <laughs> Walked through a plate glass window. Wouldn't have mattered. But luckily, I didn't have the body chemistry that made me have like a psychotic reaction to it. So, lucky there. But then I hooked up with my friends who were very, very concerned that I had been dosed with PCP. And were keeping a hairy eyeball on me. And um, But that didn't stop me from just before the concert taking a, a few hits of LSD. And a very good concert. Bobby and Jerry were sort of fighting it out on stage, man. And anyway, after the concert, we decided we were... Well, we decided we were going back to the hotel room, which was in Jersey, you know, between New York and, you know, on the New York City border. So we're driving along the river, and we... I think it was the George Washington Bridge. I don't know. I was not in... A coherent state of mind. I was on PCP and LSD. I had my first full and only real full-fledged hallucination that was, you know, I am seeing something that's not there. I looked at this big suspension bridge going across the river, and it was like an animation out of uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall. Uh, I think it was Gerald Scarf or, or whatever. But um, it looked like this giant demon creature at the other end of the bridge holding on to it and whipping the bridge up in the air like you would a jump rope. So, there, so the bridge had a wave going through it like a, a rope. And, you know, as, as the, the arc of the wave would go through the bridge, you would see the support beams underneath getting pulled out of the water and the water like us it was very similar actually to a CG effect and it was so detailed that I could see I, I remember clearly seeing a shopping cart an old beat-up shopping cart you know gnarled up and tangled in the wreckage coming up from this and we were riding to the hotel room and I was just like you know what <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you guys what I just saw. Oh, jeez. I remember going to um, a show in, in um, uh, Philly, Pennsylvania, with, with my friend Darren, and uh, buying a whole bunch of acid there. And 
just the most insanely horrifying portajohns I've ever seen. But that was one of my records for buying acid. I got probably a, a thousand hits in less than five minutes. I literally walked away from the the car that we were standing that, that you know that we came in and bumped into a guy and that was at uh, five minutes and back at the car <laughs> my business transaction concluded now i had my thousand hits of acid which brings us to the next chapter chapter six <laughs> jail The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Yep, that's right. 200 of those hits ended up in the hands of undercover cops. I mean, hey, it's Chris versus drugs, right? You can have this show without having the chapter of punishment after all the these fun and games and... and just generally flaunting um, authority. It had to happen one day. And, you know, I'd sort of thought to myself in my mind back in college when, when we would be selling drugs, I would think, you know, if I get caught, what am I going to do? It's a fair cop. <laughs> I know what the law is. <laughs> and, uh doesn't make you feel better when you're in the back of the police car. What 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 happened was after that Philly show, um, I had ended up moving back to Rochester broke with about a thousand hits of acid, which, you know, got distributed to friends and and slipped around. Well, anyway, this really sorta doofus y guy that nobody really liked ended up doing a really nice thing and getting me a job and I and had asked me if I could get him a couple sheets which is a hundred hits a sheet of acid under any normal circumstances I never would have sold drugs to this guy but he got me a really good job and I thought sure I'll do it for him well he ended up selling it to undercover cops who he brought to my apartment so he brought him over to my apartment one night when uh, my roommate and I were there. And obviously, our, uh, 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 from the very beginning, our immediately our radar was going off. Something was screwy with these guys. My first instinct was they were kind of coked out or something, which is very possible because at that time our entire police force was getting rustled up because the... the um, um, the police chief had been found taking, you know, money from the drug fund and all kinds of funny business. Well, anyway, they they said they were from another town and they had um, pot and they wanted to trade pot for LSD. And I said, well, you know, I had some LSD before, but that was from a Grateful Dead show. I don't really have any source of it, you know, to, to go and get you some, so... It's really, you know, nothing I could do. So they they left, and they would come back every couple months and check in, and uh, we would say, no, no, nothing going on. Well, meanwhile, in the meantime, 
We really didn't have any drugs. It was a big pot drought. There was no pot around. Well, one day, my roommate came home, and he was very excited because some friends of his had gotten some pot. And this is a that's another story entirely. But let just have it be known that there was... We, we had, after a long drought, bought a whole bunch of pot and had it over at the house. And then we get a knock at the door, and it's these guys again. And we're like, oh, jeez, it's these guys. So we were talking to them and, and saying, hey, look, you know... Uh, we don't have any LSD, but we'd love to have some of your pot, <laughs> you know, if you want to just sell us some of your pot. And they said, oh, sure, let's, let, 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 we'll, we'll show it to you. And they open up these, um, like, duffel bags they have and out come guns. <laughs> so we think we're getting robbed <laughs> or something, or, you know, Russell, Rousted, these guys did not seem like cops. And when they flash their badges, they flash them very quickly, so you couldn't really see what was going on. And I remember questioning them on that and ended up handcuffed to a chair, as was my roommate. And uh, so that was sort of that. That set the gears in motion for me, Chris Honeywell, felon. <laughs> so yeah, brought down to the police station, searched, butt cheeks, Pulled apart, balls lifted up, put in so many, I can't even count, holding tanks. And um, finally, after a couple days, um, I get <laughs> a visit from a lawyer. And now I'd gone in front of a judge to set bail and court date and all that stuff. And bail had been denied i had a public defender come up and say oh well don't worry we'll, we'll we'll have you out of here and all that but was not to be so i was thinking and and hearing from a lot of the cops are you're going to be here a long time and totally convinced that that was the case and as luck would have it there was a young lawyer he couldn't have been more than a couple years older than me um who I I got the impression had experimented a bit in college himself and felt sympathy towards people who got busted with LSD because it was sort of in the same category as, as cocaine. He told me, it's lucky you hadn't got caught with cocaine or you would definitely be have to go to jail. I ended up, he ended up taking my case for free, as it were, and got me five years probation, which... Hey, <laughs> with good good behavior, I was out in 3.5 years. And from that point on, I pretty much that was the end of drug dealing days. And it's been pretty much, well, well, let's just go to the final chapter and, and, and we'll see about that after this cautionary tale. Chapter 7. What drugs is Chris doing these days? The final chapter is the shortest chapter. I'm old. I'm not doing much drugs these days. An occasional energy drink, lots of caffeine, some cigarettes, and my pot. But one day, I have a single hit of the powerful psychedelic and legal psychedelic salvia divinorum sitting on my shelf waiting for that day when I'm going to have the right set and setting to try it out. 
And I will. I hear it's a 10-minute trip that takes you out of this world, man. So I'll be laying on a mattress with somebody watching over me. But I guess that about wraps it up. This podcast had seven hours of audio, which I've toned down into these two hours. There could be so many details. Maybe I'll follow it up someday. But I have two more storytellers in the works. The first one is called... I made C-3PO cry. And the second one is a sequel to Chris vs. Drugs, Chris vs. Music. So, keep your eyes open for that and uh, keep listening to Two True Freaks. And um, go to Facebook and check out the thread on this. Maybe there'll be some more details or you can ask some questions about this episode and uh, find out some further details. But in the meantime, remember... No turn left unstoned, man. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O. T 
T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.